do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is, once again, another episode of the I Love Data Centers podcast. I have with me my friend James Grice, an attorney at law who has been working in around the data center space for some time. And for those who are listening, James, I'd love uh, for people to get to know who you are, what you do. And the work that you do, which I find absolutely fascinating, and it's an integral part for the evolution and growth of our industry. Um, but where where are you these days? Where do you sit and reside? Well, I'm based out of Kansas City, um, uh, Kansas City, uh, actually. And I, I, to uh, to to draw on the recent controversy, I actually live in Kansas because we're on the border. Um, but uh, in, a, in a suburban community, Leewood, Kansas. But my practice is, is in Brian Cave, Layton Page, and our BCLP, and, uh, which is kind of a big international firm. That, uh, and uh, uh, and we're, 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 we're making our business about going after the data center space. Gotcha. Well, let's, let's drop some quick geography for our listeners, because I don't think a lot of people know this. And you know, as much as people may make fun of our, our president for thinking that Kansas City was in Kansas and not Missouri, Walk people through why that is confusing. Well, Kansas City, there is a Kansas City, Missouri, and there is a Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and uh, they're both on right across the border from each other. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess maybe because the state of Kansas and Kansas City, most people probably migrate in their mind to think that it's got to be Kansas, uh, hence the name. But I think originally, the original community of Kansas City was in Missouri. Um, and then you had the Kansas Territory. Probably, I'm not really a, that versed on the uh, on the that deeply on on the on the state history. But uh, you know, smack dab in the middle of the country. Um, you know, uh, for me and in this industry, it means I'm approximately about a three hour flight from anywhere in the United States, <clears throat> which uh, in some ways makes it convenient, given the fact that most of every, every client I work for right now is somewhere other than the Midwest. Um, whether it be Chicago, Dallas, or New York, LA, San Francisco. Gotcha. And how far away are the two Kansas cities from one another? Oh, they're adjacent to each other. I mean, they're separated by the city, by the state border. So they're literally right next to each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. They're completely adjacent. Now, Kansas City, Missouri is much, much larger than Kansas City, Kansas. And, and you know, the uh, Kansas City, Kansas, I, I don't know the acreage of each, but, you know, Kansas City, Missouri by geographic footprint is exponent. It's it's a lot bigger than KCK. Uh, that's how they refer to it locally as KCK. So what what brought you to Kansas City? Did you grow up in Kansas and or Missouri in the Midwest? Yeah, yeah, I grew up on a, a small farming community in north central Missouri and just kind of migrated to Kansas City. I actually came to Kansas City to go to school and uh, after high school, you know, uh, college and, and law school and just to have kind of made this my home. And what got you, I mean, did you always know that you wanted to get into to law to some degree back in the day? Uh, I don't know that I had a conscious uh, path charted out to be a lawyer. Um I uh, I got interested pretty quickly uh, after undergraduate, and um, you know we all have influence from folks in our lives, and and uh, and uh, you know kind of suggesting we do this, we do that, and I kind of had the same experience, and ultimately decided that it was a path that that made sense for me. So I you know I went and took the LSAT, and 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 then ultimately went to law school. So was that right out of college that you went to to law school? No, actually, when I got out of undergrad, I was actually a, um, a stockbroker. Uh, so I had a Series 7 license and all the range of uh, licenses you need to uh, to be a retail broker. Um, and uh, it was an interesting experience for me at the time. I kind of went to law school to get away from that hardcore sales environment because that's what stock brokerage was at that time. It was literally dialing for dollars, cold calling, uh, you know, prospecting for clients, uh, and uh and and trading stocks and, and bonds. Um and uh I I got a little bogged down at that stage in my life thinking that I was, you know, I was I was I could do more. I could do more intellectually than just picking up the phone and trying to sell stuff to people. Yeah. Um even though I had certain you know a fair amount of success at it. Um so that's, that was but that was the, that was a that was a disconnect for me is with that versus going to law school was I thought law school would be more more of an intellectual challenge and I'd, I'd have a little uh, would feel better about what I was doing. Uh, oddly enough, the, <laughs> the funny the, the funny secret about that is that experience of being a stockbroker and spending well I guess essentially almost three years doing that before I went to law school was an invaluable experience for me uh, relative to my law career because. Uh, in the in the in the legal business, for all intents and purposes, advocacy is sales, and um, you know, and uh, and also developing and business and, and the process of business development in the practice of law is is uh, I benefit uh, quite a bit, I think, from that experience of being in that type of sales environment. Yeah, uh, the proverbial slang, right? Making it rain is, is mm-hmm. key for law firms to exist and they need attorneys who are not just book smart and can, you know, do the work, but also know how to interact with humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and right. right. I, uh, I actually took the LSAT back in the day, back when I thought that was a path that I was going to go down, but I ended up not going because I had a startup that started to gain some traction. So I, I stuck with that versus going to law school, but I will always, you know, I was actually an assistant to a paralegal for two different summers one downtown Chicago and one in Silicon Valley during the, uh, the bust of 2000, 2001, which was a fascinating experience. Um, but I will always remember a conversation I had with an attorney friend of mine who sat me down and said, Sean, you do not want to be an attorney. You, you, 
you're an entrepreneur. You know how to go out and just make things happen. You're a catalyst. You do not want to sit in front of contracts all day, every day. Um, even if you can go out and sell and, and make it rain for a firm, you're far better to this this world and to the economy to continue to be an entrepreneur. And he really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I took that advice to heart. And I also, you know, to be blunt, all the different attorneys that I interviewed uh, at that time, I would ask them, you know, why, why are you an attorney? Like, why are you in this business? And there was not a single person that responded because I love what I do. Everyone mm-hmm. responded. It was for the money. Um, and it was all about the money at the time. Um, and I yeah. Like, well, yeah. And, and the irony of it is, the, yeah, I'm there's, sorry. there's very few people who, uh, who I've met um, who really specialize in our space because there's really only a handful of attorneys who understand uh, our industry as intimately as you do and, and a handful of folks do. But I can tell you unequivocally that those guys love our industry and they do a great job um, and they're very passionate about it, which I think is very unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a great industry to be in. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I believe this Our uh, the folks that have, 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 uh, deform our team here at Brian Cave, Leighton Pazer. Um, they, um, they all tend to kind of view themselves as working in kind of the next, you know, as one of the attorneys says, uh, kind of the bleeding edge. Um, and it's exciting cause it's, uh, it's, it's, it's emerging area. Uh, you know, things change yearly, uh, very quickly and um and it's you know it's the future it's the future uh class of real estate you know class of infrastructure i mean that's one of the challenges is it infrastructure is it real estate you know and so it, it does provide a rewarding platform to to work in and uh and uh, and participate in so out of law school did you go straight to working for law firms or did you yeah how did, yeah how did i went I uh, had a law school. I went to work for a firm that actually um, did uh, all the representation of uh, the can- what was called the Kansas City, Missouri TIF Commission. That's a uh, that's a body that's set up by the state to administer tax increment financing in the in the city of Kansas City, and um, and did that for a, quite a while. I mean, it was a, a number of years. Um, kind of served as one of the two or three attorneys that staffed that uh, that uh, that organization we were in a law firm setting so we were actually outside counsel but uh, but we were sole source so we did all of their work and the Kansas City Missouri TIF Commission was a very active uh agency uh administering incentive uh development incentives for new development of all shapes and sizes i mean it was hotels it was it was uh, retail it was sometimes housing sometimes uh, industrial um and so it was. It was. Uh, it was a really great environment to really get a, a perspective on the totality of the real estate market, but also the totality of what it takes to develop a successful project, and uh, and also the the role that incentives might play. Um, uh, it's uh, you know we had to do a lot of because we were so active, we had to develop a lot of programs and whatnot, and uh, it was just a great experience. And then I just migrated from that um, to a few law firm changes into more specialized asset uh, asset sectors like I am now, which is data centers and digital infrastructure. Yeah, walk me through that. Like, what was your first, do you, I mean, do you remember your first engagement in and around a data center transaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I got pulled into the data center space uh, by some folks that wanted to develop some property as a kind of a, what now we would call a hyperscale campus, right? At that time, 10 years ago, they just had a piece of property that had a lot of power and a lot of fiber and they wanted me to help them um, position it in a way that they could attract a tenant. Um, they were unsuccessful with their efforts, uh, but uh, but it was it was an opportunity for me in a 2009 timeframe where most of the big box retail that I was working on and leading up to that point had gone away and still kind of has. So that's what I did before the big crash in 2008 9 when the economy crashed. I was probably 95% you know big box retail and other sundry asset classes. Uh, almost exclusively development oriented, uh, with some tra- you know with some transactional spinoff work. Um, lots of lots of big million square foot centers anchored by Home Depot, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, etc. And that market just went out way overnight. And so, like I say, that I got contacted by these folks asking me to help them on this campus, and I would have tr- helped them anyway. I mean, but the, but the point is that was the first assignment. And then from there, you know, got another assignment from uh, from another client, and then uh, kind of that process of, of of taking those assignments created allowed me to gain an awareness of uh, of you know, ten years ago, it was even more in, uh, this industry was even more kind of uh, siloed. Uh, wouldn't even probably in some ways wouldn't even considered an, an industry like it is today. Um, um, and uh, it was even I, I remember I was interacting with some folks that were looking at that property, the the, the first assignment I was talking about, and uh, they were talking about, do you have text on your phone? I mean, it was right at that point when mobile compute was coming out, smartphones were coming out. They'd been out for a few years, but people were starting to text and all that stuff. And apps were being developed. You know, I remember having a conscious conversation around that time. You know, that this application development was going to be a big deal, right? The person I was talking to told me that it was an industry insider now, and uh, and it was just intriguing. You know, it was an intriguing um, uh, asset class that, in my assessment, I felt fortunate to have the opportunity to to to, to gain that realization because it seemed really ob- fairly obvious to me that there was, you know, there was a lot of aggressive growth on the horizon, um, and there has been, and there will be, you know, with uh, with this space. And I know when we we met at some industry conference many moons ago, I want to say five, six years ago, um, you were telling me that you, I think this was back when you were working with Lathrop and Gage and you were just starting to build their practice and trying to get more uh, attention around that practice. Yeah. Uh, You know, at what point did you, you know, was it somewhat of a strategic decision for you saying, look, there's going to be massive growth here. We need to focus. Uh, in this area, or was it just mm-hmm. a byproduct of deal flow coming at you from that space, or you know, to what degree was it strategic, and to what degree did it just fall in your lap um, coming into into the arena? It's both. I mean, um, like I say, when you when you look back on, for me, when I look back on the fact that I had this really what was a fairly substantial big box retail practice that literally went away. Uh, I was forced to do a reinvention process for my own professional career. I mean, there just wasn't any big box retail going on. You know, prior to that time, you know, I think home, I think Walmart would open over a hundred stores a year and they went to opening zero. Um, and so I kind of tried to pursue 
uh, tried to figure out ways and pathways, uh, you know, to kind of redeploy into a different direction, real estate oriented and transactional oriented was kind of a general theme. But the idea was to pick a to pick an industry that had, you know, substantial growth prospects for the immediate and intermediate time frame. That uh and then I to your point, picking up a few engagements, I mean at the end of the day, it becomes somewhat of an academic an academic exercise if you don't have anybody want to hire you to help. And uh you know, and I was lucky enough back in that time frame to uh to get engaged by uh, digital realty to assist them with some stuff. And um and that was probably, you know, that was probably uh, a, a very important piece to the puzzle for me to maintain that direction as opposed to going to, you know, exclusively into renewable energy or something else like that. Because my practice does kind of cross over right now between energy and data center digital infrastructure. And then it has is, it is become a minor part of my practice, uh, other real estate asset classes. We still, I still do that, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it more, um, it's a much more minor component now as compared to back in that time frame. But it was like I say, it was a little bit of both strategic. And then, you know, that's the way life is, you know, you kind of get an opportunity to, in, in, in business, you get an opportunity to help somebody and they're willing to, to pay you to help in a consulting context. That's important. Right. And, uh, and so you follow that, you follow that thread of opportunity. Yep. If, I mean, the energy and data center space are so intimately related that that makes perfect sense. The, um, the interesting conversation that I will always remember having with you, and part of the reason why I've, I've thought to bring you on, and I'm excited to have you here, is the conversation around incentives. And we hear incentives about how data center owner operators can have incentives to deploy into a state or a city or a county. And there's also incentives for tenants within those facilities in terms of sales tax uh, rebates for infrastructure that they buy that's deployed. There's there's a broader uh, and I just want let's start from ground zero right why in 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 what capacity can states counties and cities even facilitate um, and provide incentives for those types of, of providers in the data center industry? Well, I mean, I think data center incentives as a topic i think sometimes is a little misunderstood by the general public i mean i think when we were doing big box retail stuff we were redirecting sales taxes that were generated by the sales at the site back into the the development cost of the site and depending upon the state we were working in and the jurisdiction sometimes you could pay for on-site improvements sometimes you'd only you'd be limited to off-site infrastructure um and that was truly incentivizing those folks and they're creating you know $35,000 a year jobs and those, those communities thought that was great. Uh, the data center is more of an industry movement. It's a critical infrastructure that we need going forward. It's really more of digital manufacturing. And, and so whenever I've gotten involved in these projects, uh, you know, uh, I try to use vocabulary when I'm talking to policymakers that we're really talking about trying to adjust the tax framework that applies to this particular next generation facility. Um, and so it's really about trying to change that framework so taxes don't apply when you can do it that way. Now, how you do that is a combination of statutory programs uh, as well as uh, what we'll call discretionary programs that are typically typically governed by local jurisdiction. Statutory programs, of course, are a matter of statute, and so then you get them as a matter of right uh, to the extent you qualify. Um, but, you know, both pathways um, are valuable. 
most of your co-location operators are, that are building big campuses are going to migrate to those areas where they have statutory tax framework adjustments, you know, exemptions that are available for a data center for data center equipment. Um, Illinois just passed a statute. Um, there's probably two dozen states that have taken action to do that, and um, they still a lot of the, a lot of the economic developers still refer to that as incentives. But uh, but I think ultimately over the long, the intermediate term, you know, uh, I mean, inputs to manufacturing are not taxable, and I would submit to you that by anal- by analogy, if not direct comparable. Uh, the inputs, i.e. servers and mission-critical infrastructure, should not be taxable just like manufacturing equipment is in a manufacturing context. And so to, we so Hold on. Just to be clear, what you're saying, you made a very interesting point. Uh, inputs to manufacturing are not taxable. So as that relates yeah. to the digital digital manufacturing, right, which I, I think that's genius um, and and accurate, uh, is are all, all states, however, don't interpret it interpret that statement to be true because they haven't um, either thought through it or enacted it. Is that an right? Accurate That's statement? right. That's right. I mean, you know, states are, are there, there's an evolution happening across the United States right now with how they, they look at this tax potential tax base and, and you get into real troubling policy issues where, you know, like there were some recent reports came out in Virginia and they talked about the amount of job that they job creation, they could, they could, attribute to the data center, you know, the data center industry there. And it's massive. I mean, it's in the tens of thousands of jobs that they are tying back to the data center industry. And, and so a lot of jurisdictions, I think there's an, a, there's kind of an awareness uh, uh, that's happening across the country where people are starting to see that, you know, this really does create an economic engine, uh, but it's not like an advanced manufacturing plant. It's not like a big box retail facility. It's it's a different type of facility, um, and those are the challenges in trying to work with local governments. And and you know when you're trying to do a, dis- a discretionary approval, which would be a that would be a tax abatement type of thing with a local city that has the authority statutorily to um, avoid, you know get rid of taxes. They call it tax abatement. Sometimes you create an exemption to avoid, but you avoid the taxes somehow through their vote. And that becomes a very politicized vote. Um, and so this messaging that I'm talking about, this is how this is what we use whenever we try to take these things forward, is uh, particularly when you're in that discretionary approval as opposed to a statutory environment where it's a matter of right. You have to get the votes. Um, it's important to use this vocabulary that you and I are talking about right now because people get it. I mean, they absolutely, you can see the light bulb go off above their head. So many times they don't think of it that way until you give them the opportunity, right? Uh, you kind of lead them to that point. What, what, from a phraseology perspective, if incentives and tax abatement is the you know not the most accurate way of describing it, what what is the accurate way? Just calling it a statutory tax framework. When I, yeah, I, I always talk about the tax framework applicable to this asset class. Uh, what framework is the most suitable framework we need to cultivate this uh, this the, the development of this infrastructure in your jurisdiction? And you know we have a tax framework, and again, you apply it, if you compare it back to manufacturing, they have a tax framework that applies to them. And generally speaking, I mean, it may vary from state to state, but generally speaking, inputs to manufacturing are not subject to sales tax, for instance. And uh, so, by analogy, should we have a tax framework 
that looks like that that applies to servers because servers are an integral part of the whole data center process. And um, but again, I, I always try to say that's not we're not incentivizing this. We're trying to create a, a tax framework that that that, in, that encourages this economic development and this uh, this economic engine in their community. So, what states and/or counties do you think have a more evolved uh, view into this topic and are you know understanding this at the level that we're talking about? Oh, I mean, there's there's a number across the country. If I start trying to list them, I'll probably forget one. But I mean, the ones that kind of jump out at you are the ones that have the most activity, really. Um, particularly the ones that are emerging right now. I mean, you know, the classic example of a jurisdiction that changed their tax framework and saw an immediate, uh, almost an immediate surge in their activities, Arizona. Arizona, you know, was probably a, on a, on a, on a, uh, an annual absorption basis. Uh, different sources will come up with different answers on this, but I think they were about a 10 megawatt market to absorb, uh, uh, Tennessee absorption. And, I'm thinking they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're two, three, four times that now. I think last year I've heard reports that they've got planned capacity down there in, in the hundreds of megawatts of planned capacity, you know, by all the, all the wholesale co-location operators. Um, and there's other attributes that make that jurisdiction favorable, of course, but the, you know, it probably is fair to say that that jurisdiction by changing their taxes uh, you know, allowed decision makers to feel more comfortable with the decision to, you know, to pledge resources, i.e., you know, the wholesale developers to build out new space or to begin to build out new space. But there's other jurisdictions. I mean, Virginia is the classic example. Um, like I say, uh, Illinois just passed a bill. Uh, Texas has had a bill for a while. Texas's bill is kind of a high barrier to entry, so it really doesn't get used as much like Virginia and Arizona, it's really more of a big, it, it's, it's intended to attract really big users. And a lot of states do that. They think that, you know, only the big should get the benefit. Um, but ultimately, I think that it's, hope that hopefully that mindset will change over time um, for all the reasons I've kind of alluded to. Well, as, as you're talking, it's just dawning on me that the growth of the edge data center marketplace in tier two, tier three cities is going to be to some degree tied to the understanding of this conversation right here. Yeah, I mean, because the, the tax burden is a big deal. It's, it's a material decision because when you have a server that costs 2000 bucks, now jurisdiction by jurisdiction, it varies across country. But a $2,000 server and you buy it and you have to pay sales tax on it, well, that's 9%. So that's $180, and you got to pay personal property taxes on it if the jurisdiction imposes that. Some some don't. Uh, that's not a uniform across the country, but most all, unless they change things, typically have a sales tax. Well, then that's going to be based on that value, and, and may, that may be another few hundred bucks. But the piece to the puzzle that is that makes it so important is the refresh. You know, if you had a one-time tax, that might not be so imposing, but in this industry, that's the thing that most non-industry folks don't realize is, you know, those servers are going to come out in 30 months and there's going to be a new one put in there. And the whole thing, you know, you're going to refresh the whole data center in a, in a 30 month cycle. Maybe it's 24, maybe it's 36. It depends on the user and their requirements and their equipment and all that stuff, as you know. But, and so now you look at a 10 year total cost of occupancy and you start totaling those tax burden hits up it's 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 very material and i think you're right on the edge i mean 
servers are servers, right? Uh, how much compute power do you need? Uh, you have a certain number of blade servers, there's density, there's all these things going to drive what, how, what that is. There's other components of the data center that benefit from a tax burden relief program as well, a tax framework adjustment. But, uh, um, but the burden of those taxes under the, under the kind of, let's call it the 20th, you know, the, the last century, the 20th century environment, um, doesn't work for data centers. It doesn't work for data centers the way data centers operators need it to work. And so that's where you see these big deployments go in these jurisdictions because of the, because of the tax. Now, they also happen to have good power rates there and available power, right? With the right kind of, uh, power, you know, right kind of, the right kind of power, you know, as far as reliability and so forth. Well, then, but, real, um, real quick, you said a word that uh, I don't think I heard correctly. Do you say evadable? No. Evadable power. You said the right kind of power. Oh well, I, I, I maybe I broke up. It's a, a suitable power, right? That has that's reliable, right? I mean, uh, you've got to have enough power to the site that can actually grid power in the United States. Typically, we're not doing on-site power solutions. Typically, we're doing data centers with grid power sources, and certain grid power. United States grids probably very stable throughout the whole country, but there probably are areas that have more reliable, stable power sources than others. Um, but that, that's what I was alluding to. Gotcha. Okay, another another key point here that I really want to dig into. Um, you had mentioned that uh, I forget which which state had done a study and shown that you know tens of thousands of jobs were directly tied to the data center growth in that market. That gets disputed, right? Because people say, "Oh, well, build a data center. Data centers only take a handful of people to operate mm-hmm, them. Right. To build. How does that directly impact?" job growth in that market. Um, walk me through and walk the listeners through that conversation and the you know, the different ways to view that. Well, it really goes to the essence of the operation of a data center. Um, you know, that it is a true, it's a true statement that data centers actually are, are you know, maybe trying to reduce uh, uh, direct, direct employees at a particular facility. But what happens is you create an ecosystem at the site um, you know, whenever we were working on, I had the opportunity to work directly on the Arizona legislation when it went through. And uh, one of the things we did for the elected officials there is we actually got a bus, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a coalition and invited all the legislatures to get on the bus. And we drove by every big, we drove by a handful, maybe a half dozen facilities, right? We couldn't visit every data center in the Phoenix market. But we drove by them, and what we made made certain to do was to point out to them the construction trailer, and then we would ask we try usually try to get some representative from that facility to speak to how long has that construction trailer been there, and how long do you plan it to be there? And all of them were like, "Well, it's been there for however long, you know, as long as they start. It could be years." And and there's really no plans to remove it because we have ongoing work that we we, we anticipate in the immediate future. And the point we would make is that this data center—it's—it's really—it's really a—it's—it's really a, uh, uh, an ecosystem that is an apparatus that needs constant maintenance, constant refresh, constant upgrades, and it's what's a continual construction site. And you know that generalization may have exceptions, of course, but then when you when you can when you can get people to embrace that idea, then you can start to understand that. Um, um, it is a job creator, but it's a job creator based on the ecosystem creating jobs, full-time equivalents that may not be getting a W-2 check from the data center operator 
but they get it from the construction company. They get it from the uh, the maintenance uh, company. They get it from uh, other folks that benefit and participate in that that overall ecosystem, which is a very dense investment of capital, right? I mean, data centers by and large are thousands of dollars a foot as opposed to hundreds of dollars a feet. And, and because of that expenditure and the need to maintain it so specifically, they do create they do create jobs in general. And that's how we try to get around that when we talk to elected officials to help understand the policy behind it. The other thing that data centers don't get benefit of is they don't get benefit of the lack of impact. You know, I mean, when you have a data center, um, you know, uh, obviously it draws on the power grid. It generally uses, uses water, but it doesn't create as much traffic. And and to the extent that the job creation is less than the uh, uh, than the total dollar spend on another facility, uh, they don't impact the schools as much. Um, and that's another that's another thing we've done in local jurisdictions in particular to articulate why this is a good idea. Because um, we create this ecosystem, we create this opportunity for you know uh, electricians and and high wage earning labor as part of the construction and refresh and maintenance. And um, and by virtue of not having so many uh, uh, permanent residents because of our, jo- our lower job creation, we have lesser impact on your schools and streets and public safety. Um, and it's you know it's an argument, it's an advocacy point. Um, intuitively, a lot of people embrace it as it makes sense. Quite frankly, it doesn't always win the argument though. Well, that that conversation and I would say the language and the optics around it are. Are critical and it ties right back to the incentives and tax abatement versus tax framework conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Really, right. It's gonna it's gonna have to be a matter of us educating uh, the right players in each state and in um, county and city on these topics to get them to view things uh, more holistically. Uh, than mm-hmm. the simple, well, the data center is only going to hire, you know, what, a dozen full-time people to staff and manage and maintain it. You know, those dozen people for the size of, you know, for all the power that you're going to be bringing in or water that you're going to need just doesn't equate, doesn't make sense. Uh, right, and, right. And having tangible examples and case studies that we can speak to uh, supporting the reality of the ecosystem and marketplace that's being developed inside that facility uh, that's providing opportunity for so many other businesses that either want or need to be near uh, that marketplace. I think that is critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's like I say, it's it's an education process because it really is new information for a lot of policymakers. And the other thing about the data center business that I've noticed over the ten years I've been in it is it moves so much faster than the policymakers move. And so all these decisions we're asking them to make, um, you know, the, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're lagging, right? The policy lags the needs of the industry. Um, and, and that's, I don't know that we're going to avoid that, uh, per se, because the demand drivers for data center capacity are massive, right? Uh, you and I have both been to numerous conferences with very credible speakers talking about, Artificial intelligence, driverless cars, Internet of Things, you know, the continued proliferation of 5G and mobile compute and so forth and so on. And all that stuff's going to drive more data, more, you know, you talk about the edge, which is really just more distributed data centers, right? Distributed across more locations uh, to get closer to to their uh, 
to their to to uh, to their customers or what have you. And uh, to your point, uh, as we see more and more of that, we're going to see a lot of things that are going to come up. I mean, you know, data centers start using more energy. We're going to have to be careful about the energy policy. Uh, we're going to have to be, uh, hopefully, we'll, we will be able to continue to achieve uh, a more balanced tax framework that, that works for to, to cultivate that at where, need, where they need to be. So the, TC, the total cost of ownership is not completely bust, you know, uh, in certain locations. Um, but it's it's that's what makes the whole industry great. That's what makes it interesting to to participate in, because it is very unique and it creates a lot of unique issues, uh, and many of which just haven't been solved, because it's a it's a it's a it's a next gen asset class and a next gen operational model that um, you know we're on the front edge of it too. I mean. Uh, you know, a lot of these jurisdictions, you know, they've tried to attract the big, I won't mention any of the names, but all the big, you know, the big cloud operators. And those facilities are a class on their own, right? Those, 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 they're owner occupied, they're massive, they're planned to be massive. Um, and jurisdictions think they can attract that big logo. Um, they feel very good about that. But the reality is there's going to be a lot of, of data center infrastructure that's going to be occupied by folks that aren't going to be the big logo hyperscale users. They're going to be other folks. Um, keep explaining to people that paradigm. They're like, well, everything's going to move to the cloud. And I'm, first of all, I have to explain that not all of the cloud service providers build and maintain their own facilities and that they work with third-party operators, which is the majority of the infrastructure that they leverage is third-party operated. Right. And the other piece is that not all applications and uh, data is suited for the cloud and that there or will always be a massive continuing uh, growth of the co-location services market where you have you know, hosting provide like smaller, medium-sized, even regional or national hosting providers that are not going to ever be the scale of the Amazon or the Google who are going to pick up those workloads. And then in other circumstances, you have individual companies that will, for whatever you know, various reasons, need to maintain their own data sets and control mm -hmm. their data and own and operate and manage their own, um, not necessarily data center, but their own footprint inside of a data center. Yeah, it's that's the thing that I think, let's just call it folks that aren't in the industry yet. Um, they, they, you know, they kind of think a data center is a data center is a data center, and it's not. Everything you just mentioned will define how that data center um, occupancy will occur and the use patterns of that particular uh, data center user. Uh, and the data center user's needs are going to be defined by the applications they run, right? And the applications are limited by the capacity of the servers and the data, you know, the compute power, the speed, and so forth. And that's why we're on the front edge of this, because, you know, there's applications that have yet to be developed um, that might, might open up a whole new segment of needs. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and that's also makes it interesting from a legal standpoint, you know, beyond the tax framework stuff, which is very important, uh, and it's becoming more important for site selection purposes and development purposes and whatnot. Managing tax burden is a big deal. It's material. But also when you talk about trying to structure the, the relate, the, the documents around the, the, uh, the occupancy, you know, uh, um, uh, that uh, that can vary depending upon the the user desires, and we're seeing all sorts of trends in the market right now. We are seeing in our practice, at least, we're seeing a lot of divestiture transactions where folks have built these big 
these big tier four data centers tend to be financial service folks, but they could be anybody. And they're, to your point, you know, they are doing a hybrid solution probably, or they are consolidating, or they're doing something that down downsizes their proprietary on-prem needs. Uh, and so, but they, so they want to divest of this big asset, and then they, and then, but then they they want to maintain some some occupancy at that facility. Maybe it's a migra- maybe it's a period of time for them to migrate out. Maybe it's maybe they want to stay there for the for the longer term. But it's uh, it's ever changing, and, and and it also makes it uh, that that whole that velocity of change in this business makes the whole legal side of it so interesting. Uh, because all these issues, some of which haven't been some, some there's sometimes issues that haven't been figured out yet. Sometimes there are new challenges that come up that uh, that we have to address. Um, the divestiture transactions are actually a, a, a huge challenge. Uh, we've had the opportunity to work on probably more than a dozen in the last couple of years and and, and there's a lot of common threads and there's a lot of things but a lot of, uh, and there's a lot of new issues that come up from time to time but uh, again it's just it just makes the whole industry interesting to your to your title you know I love data I love data centers it is it's really a fun place to be in right now yeah and I jokingly say that it caters to my self-diagnosed ADHD uh, because it's constantly evolving and constantly changing there's always new shiny objects that you have to explore and look at and understand and figure out how it relates back to the, the whole. So that's right. Another question I have for you is, is there any way to push for federal, uh, you know, regulation so that we don't have to keep fighting this on a state by state basis? Mm, I'd have to think about that one. I mean, most of the, most of the taxes I w- I've been referring to on this conversation have been state and local taxes. And so, therefore, they probably would not, in a normal circumstance, would probably not be governed by federal law, right? Um, like I said, I'd have to think about how you would position that if you wanted to. There have been, I mean, there have been federal initiatives, but typically, the, uh, I think most of them have been around uh, taxing Internet commerce. Um which is an, another whole issue that it could consume another hour conversation. Um, but the, um, but I, I've not had a conversation or been asked to, to, to really figure that one out. And I think it would be challenging just because of the, the jurisdictional differences. You know, local property tax goes to typically the county in, in jurisdictions that call them, you know, they have counties and the cities. Um, sales taxes tend to go to a lot of, it depends on every state, but they tend to go to the state and the local jurisdictions. And so then they all have jurisdiction to govern how they're going to tax, you know, and usually that's got some constitutional limitations to it, but, um, but that's how that's done. And there's, unless you would create an exempt status federally, these facilities are exempt from tax, which was a really big, it's, it's a really material concept, uh, uh, I mean, you know, like a um, there are certain there are certain exemptions for certain things federally, but um, it would seem like that's a really difficult uh, action to take, and it would have a very diverse pushback because you're really talking about federal authority reaching down into locals and tell them how to how to generate their their annual revenue. Going back to the earlier conversation about manufacturing, are there federal, uh, you know? Laws, mandates, whatever exemptions for manufacturing facilities. Most of those are state-based. 
Gotcha. Well, you know, most of, most most states have recognized that in, inputs to manufacturing in certain circumstances should be free of tax. And but but you know, and you have to think about why do they do that? Well, they think the reason they do that is because they think that if you take raw materials and incorporate them into a manufactured good, the manufactured good will end up being sold at retail and will generate retail sales tax. And that's the justification that the states have made for that. Um, obviously, I'm talking in high generalities and not as to any particular state, but that's why they do that. And so the analogy that I used earlier, you know, there is a, uh, it's not directly on point. Um, I think it's persuasive, and I think it does start us down a pathway of a very productive policy conversation. But uh, but that's how the manufacturing stuff would work. It's not necessarily a federal-based thing. It's usually a state-by-state. State. But over the course of the, you know, from the Industrial Revolution, you know, in the 1900s, um, uh, you know, States adopted that type of policy. Many states adopted that type of policy to create these exemptions for uh, traditional manufacturing. And like I say, there are those in this industry that feel like that's that's coming in this industry as well. We just haven't gotten there yet. You know, it's uh, you know the comfort level in doing that, and and then also the stable tax basis. I mean, all these local jurisdictions they rely upon taxes to pay pay the bills to provide the services that their that their constituency expects, and so. Um, you know that all has to kind of, kind of stabilize and, and and kind of reach its right right level, you know, uh, politically and and also physically, you know, um, how they can project those revenues. Gotcha. So one of the other major topics that constantly comes into play in my conversations is the availability of talent who is coming into our industry and the learning curve for said talent. Uh, to either A, even be interested in what it is that we're doing, B, have the knowledge uh, and understanding of what it is that we're doing. I'm curious from your perspective on the legal side, are you seeing interest from attorneys coming through the system that want to get into this space and, and have yeah. passion about it? Yeah, yeah. Within, I mean, Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner, uh, we've got, I don't know what our headcount is exactly right now, but say 1,400 lawyers globally with 32 offices around the globe. Uh, we've got a lot of energy and excitement within the firm around this, uh, what we call our data center and digital infrastructure sector. Uh, we we created a sector last year, so it is prioritized one of, I don't know, 15 sectors we have, uh, plus or minus, uh, that we are focusing on growing. And, um, you know, as I've tried to, contribute in a, at a leadership level in that team. Um, it is interesting the amount of, like I say, amount of enthusiasm that we get from um, younger attorneys as well as, as partner level attorneys that want to be involved. Um, and it's, it is interesting for the younger attorneys, they really relate to it. Some, some of them relate, you know, uh, relate quicker than partners that are approaching retirement. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting in the law business. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in my law firm still that has their secretary print their emails so they can read them, but that did happen. <laughs> I mean, there, there were lawyers whenever, you know, at some point in the last 10 years that would have their secretary print their emails so they could read them instead of going on the computer and read it, right? And we just, as we're, just, and, and those folks tend to be approaching retirement. And uh, as we see younger folks come into the business, you know, they're more self sufficient technologically. Um, they do more of their own document preparation, you know, uh, so it changes our staffing. 
And so because they have, because of that, right, because they're coming out of law school and they've, they've been exposed to all this, this uh, mobile compute application environment that we all know to exist, they're also more in tune with these demand drivers and why this asset class is so important. So like I say, we see a lot of enthusiasm of young attorneys in that, that if they have an initial interest in real estate, corporate and transactional, then we've had, uh, like I say, we've had a lot of luck internally and, uh, in, in, in finding good young talent internally that want to be cross-trained so that they can, they can handle lease transaction documents. They can handle, you know, asset purchase documents and real estate purchase documents and the associated due diligence work. No, I'm curious, have there been any major cases in and around like unique cases that have helped define how our industry operates that, that you're aware of or have been part of but outside of the transactional, you know, um, contract component. Have there been, you know, lawsuits at the end of the day uh, that have been specifically helping to define the data center asset class and or, you know, yeah, the, the legal framework surrounding those facilities? I don't know that any come to mind that are really noteworthy. I mean, in the tax space, there are some emer- there are some decisions that are being uh, debated in certain states around you know, should this be considered in the states that have these programs that avoid taxes, uh, that create these exemptions. Um, for instance, I know in the state of Arizona, there's three or four issues floating around that are being, that are going to have to reach resolution because there's some, you know, there's, there's a perception of some ambiguity in one thing or another. And so they, uh, there's some, uh, there's some activity there, but, you know, I think the, uh, uh, thinking about other areas where there could be, contentiousness and litigation, um, none come to mind outside of the tax arena for me um, as uh, to answer your question. Understood. I'm quite certain there probably will be. And, there will uh, be. There will yeah. be. I mean, we, we've had some some lease renegotiations recently or lease extensions, and, and there's been issues come up on that. I mean, the thing about a data center, which I always tell folks as we're trying to recruit these young attorneys, right, and train them, that you know, data center leasing in particular um, is you 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 really have to understand what the data center is doing and why. You don't have to be an engineer, but you know, like for instance, the service level agreement is essentially an engineering spec at some level, right? It's a specification that the services have to be as set forth, and 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 those are important because obviously, if server level aren't met, then the data center doesn't function properly, and the occupant should have the right to leave. That's kind of the essence of a service level agreement. Um, but the, uh, you know, as we, as we get into this business, you know, there's, there's, there's more and more of that stuff that's going to happen. And then those are kind of foreign concepts. And you talk about the context of litigation, you know, those, those, those things are going to get tried. Those disputes are going to get tried if and when they occur, right. You know, uh, maybe standard of, uh, I'm just shooting from the hip here a little bit, but maybe standard of care, if we want to pick on a service level agreement context, you know, what is, you know, what constitutes gross negligence? If that's the term of art that's in the agreement that governs whether or not you have, you know, have recourse uh, on a service level failure, right? Uh, of course, nobody has those, right? Nobody has a service level failure. That's the, that's the, that's the public, that's the public word, right? But the more data centers we have and the more, the more operators, the, the more need for operators and the more operators that show up, 
things like that are going to start happening more and more. And as they happen, then they're going to get litigated. And there'll be disputes because they're because they're major. Those are major problems. One of the key topics in and around that space that has come up over and over again in my world on the on the sales side is really the difference between a services agreement versus a lease agreement and how that yeah. affects a deal from both just the size of the contract that someone has to sign um, as well as the terms and conditions and, and related indemnifications. Can you dig into that topic at all for a little bit? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's there's some folks, uh, particularly folks that are that are REITs, that uh, always migrate, tend to try to migrate to a document that that gives rise to qualifying income, um, as opposed to service uh, compensation for services. Um, and so, from that, you know, from that branch, if you mean that Y in the road, then you start moving moving down the pathway of, of what's preferred. Um, and it becomes a risk mitigation question to your point. Um, I think, um, there are some folks that they want to use, particularly the bigger, the bigger, uh, occupancy, a lot of times want to use a, a, a document that says lease or at least looks like a lease in the, in the form of the document. Uh, again, it has probably a lot to do with the, the nature of maintaining proper characterization of their income for repurposes. Um, but I, I, I think it's it's really kind of hard to talk and make generalizations about why do one versus the other because I I've seen we've seen both in small and large transactions, um, and it really comes down to you know the needs of the uh, of the parties in the transaction, um, and and you know one party needs it worse than the other then they, then then that's the art of compromise to uh, to be able to be comfortable with those set of terms. Well, I, I always found it interesting that let's just look at the publicly traded REITs, right? Data center REITs, which I think almost all of them, if not all mm-hmm, of them, right. are structured as REITs. So being structured as a REIT means that, you know, the vast majority, I think it's, what is it, 80% of your income has to come from mm-hmm. lease-related transactions, right? Right. Qualifying income, correct. Um, I think that's so, right. So if that, it's it's around 80%, it might be 75 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, if that's the case, though, the contracts that I know clients sign with them, by and large, not not the major you know, mega ten year, you know, eight year, fifteen year uh, deals that for are for you know, megawatts plus, but the smaller retail colocation deals that are ten kW, you know, hundred kW, even up to two hundred fifty kW, they tend to be structured as service agreements, mm-hmm. not leases. So it's always yeah. been a conundrum and a quandary for me as to how those can be viewed as lease lease agreements uh, being structured as a REIT, which is what would be needed versus a service agreement. Have you, have you ever come across that? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, we we do work for REITs, and you know, we'll we'll typically have my REIT tax expert, you know, work with our clients, internal folks, to kind of say grace over. Uh, over that issue, you know, as a pre-closing matter. Um, but, you know, the thing to keep in mind, I mean, typically, you know, documents, they are what the, they, they are in the document, what they are, not the, what the title says, just because it may say a lease or it may say a service agreement. And then there, you, you just have to do the analysis. Having said that, you know, it, it is kind of a, it is kind of a portfolio type of thing. And, 
and it's just it requires diligence. You're right, and you'd have to you'd have to look at the fact the facts of each situation to to, to make a conclusion. Um, like I said, I don't know that a, a broad generalization. The folks that are doing those smaller transactions are going to be relying upon their counsel to make sure and slot those transactions in a way that is consistent with their goals if they're a REIT. And if they're not, then they're not as worried about it, right? Unless they have kind of an exit strategy or something that requires that. Gotcha. Understood. The, um, I guess let me let me pose a question to you just broadly. What are some of the other major issues that you're facing on a day-to-day basis that we haven't covered yet that I think our listeners are interested in hearing about? Oh, I mean, I don't know. A, a, a recent issue that's kind of hit our desk that uh, we've been spending a fair amount of time on for clients is uh, power procurement. Um, you know, data centers are large capacity users, of course, um, some larger than others. But it's been interesting to kind of see across the globe, if you may, particularly between U.S. and um, in Europe is really kind of the data set that I'm talking about about the, uh, the the pros and cons of various jurisdictions. You know, uh, a lot of the European jurisdictions are uh, have some power constraints. You know, whether that be a lot of times that's a grid capacity constraint. And then in the United States, we don't see that as much. But uh, power procurement has is, is been kind of an interesting issue in the last six months. And in particular, you know, uh, one of the issues that we got pulled into to look at was the um, flexible demand arrangement in Ireland, which Ireland's struggling with capacity issues right now. Uh, they've got a lot of big users, and um, they're having difficulty figuring out how to provide firm commitments for power. And that's 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 an interesting issue. You know, other jurisdictions have figured out auction structures and so forth, European jurisdictions, to allocate power. Um, but, you know, it's it can be problematic if you allocate firm commitment to a 100-megawatt customer and they're only using 20. Uh, you can't reallocate it to somebody else. And so a lot of these the grid operators and, and power, power production fleets and whatnot, I, I think that's an issue that's going to continue to rear its head because we're seeing such bigger deployments, you know, and um, it's, it's, I think sometimes we forget how much power a 100 megawatt facility is. You know, that's a lot of power. I mean, there's nothing really like it out there <laughs> in the rest of the industry. And there's not very many industries that draw that kind of load. And so if you have a 100 or 200 megawatt campus, I mean, you're a really big user. And, um, and the more of those we get and the more demand we have on power, I, I think that's where we're, we're focusing a lot on trying to make sure and, and mobilize our power expertise to be able to accommodate those issues. Um, and um, I'm trying to think of anything else we've been seeing, but that's that's one that's just recently come up and, and we've had a lot of internal dialogue about it. You hit on a key point, which is a lot of providers will come in, you know, allocating or or telling the utility that they're going to need, you know, five megawatts or 10 megawatts for the facility. And then when you look at the actual load being drawn, even once it's full, it's a fraction of that. So how, how does that get mitigated and how, how is that load, you know, those commitments pulled back by the utility provider and, or even audited by the utility provider? Yeah, that's the essence of the problem. And they, there, there's, we recently did a look across multiple jurisdictions in Europe on our team, and 
and we tried to kind of pull in how other jurisdictions are handling it. But uh, like I say, it's going to continue to be a more amplified issue as we go forward. Uh, the hyperscale movement with folks with, with more and more deployment, uh, you know, all the analysts out there projecting. I, I was set to a presentation recently where um, an analyst was projecting, I think, hyperscale growth over the next five years. I thought, I think it was like in a forty percent annualized. I mean, it was, it was you know projected to be really aggressive growth. Um, and um, the thing about the hyperscale growth is that you know it's just big chunks. Um, but anyway, that's an issue that's uh, that we, that we've worked on a lot. We also try to mobilize a lot. It's a little it's it's related, but it's a little different around the whole five G infrastructure build out. Um, um, but uh, but that's more about more more specifically wireless infrastructure as opposed to data centers. Yeah. Well, there, uh, related to that, there's a huge topic uh, that we don't have time to cover around data waste. Um, and I've read something about if every, if every citizen in France, for example, uh, were to delete 50 of their emails, it would conserve enough power to power the entire uh, country for, you know, a couple dozen years, which mm-hmm. yeah. Me, but um, I've not really, I've not really read anything on that. But that intuitively, that that does make sense because you know we have all these, we have all this space that's getting used. I mean, our phone gets, you know, backed. Our iPhone gets backed up automatically to the cloud. You know, if at least you can have a setting where it will do that. And you have all these pictures, and people take so many pictures, and people people generate so much data. It's not just pictures; it's everything. And, uh, yeah, we're just, we're on the front edge of all these issues and all these issues are going to start to get, they're going to start to hit the point where they're going to have, maybe it's a policy question, maybe it's a business question, but, uh, I can see where that's a, that's a big deal. And then if it all rolls into the industry markets, you know, um, and the, uh, and then even more specifically the carbon, uh, the, uh, the, the, the generation or the use of carbon, you know, cause data centers are, they called them in the California, the California had a little cap and trade program they tried to do, and they're doing, I guess, but, but, you know, they had an interesting program there talked about indirect emitters and, uh, and indirect emitters, you know, you weren't generating, you weren't generating carbon, but you were considered an indirect generator because you're using so much power. And, um, of course, the United States does not have a cap and trade program, and even though it was tried years ago. But, you know, the whole issue of that waste data relative to consumption of power relative to carbon footprint, that's got to happen someday. It, it's, I don't know if it's on the immediate horizon or the intermediate or the long-term horizon, but, you know, kind of the, the that all kind of, it all flows. And... um and like I say, as policymakers come and go, then those issues are going to be more prominent in the policy discussion. There's there's actually a company uh, or an organization, I think, more appropriately, that is called Humane Tech. And I've been mm-hmm. following them for the last few months and very impressed with the work they're doing and the, uh, the information that they're pushing out. But it's all about having a far more thoughtful approach to how we are using technology. Uh, and making sure that we're not using it in a wasteful manner and trying to integrate certain principles of uh, sustainability uh, through design and mm-hmm. through design of applications, through design of uh, 
the physical hardware components or mobile devices, uh, all of it. And I think that it, we owe it to ourselves and the industry uh, to start thinking very specifically about those uh, topics because to the point, you know, we simply don't have, if the industry continues to grow as it, as it has been, and if you ask me, and I'm sure you'll concur, and anyone else who's in our space, we are truly at the infant stage yeah. of our industry, right? Yep. Like, you know, if, if our industry is a can grow to be a 100-year-old man, I'm convinced that we're still maybe one or two years old, right? We're just toddlers um, growing up in the space, which means we have exponentially more power that is going to be needed to even support all of the, the digital needs of the brave new digital world that we live in today, which means we have to be on top of this, at the forefront of it. And what scares me is one of the comments that you made, which is totally true. And I'm seeing this here in North Carolina, uh, working with Jason Sane, who's a representative uh, here um, that, that we work intimately with, um, and others on the policy side in North Carolina, uh, that the industry is moving faster than policymakers move and that policy is lagging the needs of the industry. That's hands mm-hmm. down the case, right? Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And it's, uh, you know, and I, something you spurred a thought when you mentioned the, uh, you know, the, I guess it was humane tech, right? You know, another issue, which again, we don't have time to talk about, and I don't, I'm not an expert on it at all. I'm probably not as informed, even informed enough to talk about it intelligently, is the, uh, the whole concept of e-waste. Uh, and I only mentioned that because I had a conversation recently with someone that's in the business of servers, you know, one of the manufacturers, and they were talking about, you know, um, you know, they, they get all these, I mean, they refresh these servers. I've been involved with for clients on decommissioning exercises and, uh, you know, and was able to observe how they handle that corporately, you know, as, a, as the occupier, as the data center user. But there's interesting, there's interesting dialogue that needs to be had around that because I don't, I don't know if we're as good at managing that e-waste as we could be, you know, namely spent servers. You know, what do you do with them? Um, Most definitely we're not. And unfortunately, in those conversations, most people are just literally shredding them and sending them to landfills, which is just blows my flipping mind because we have so many other ways that we can repurpose all that data and infrastructure and even repurpose it in such a way that the hard drives and the disks uh, where the data is stored are completely scrubbed. Uh, from anything that was on it prior and can be reused. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just to go back to one of the comments that I was making as a point of clarification, I found the quote, and it's that if every single, or the data point, if every single person in France deleted 50 emails, the energy savings would be equivalent to turning the Eiffel Tower's lights off for 42 years. So it's not all of yeah. France's power, but the Eiffel Tower's lights. Uh, which well, and... And you know the general, you know the general strategy of, of sustainability, energy uh, efficiency. It, at first, it's efficiency, and then we move to measures to reduce maybe carbon footprint. And um, but you know, it's like we all do it in our own house. I went through the house today before I left, and I had to shut off five lights because my kids leave all the lights on. I mean, mm-hmm. um, we all kind of fall victim to that uh, of not having a uh, Contextually, not realizing the, the the incremental impact of those things, whether it be my children or me personally, and or a citizen of France, right? Uh, all those little incremental steps can be very, very beneficial. But it's hard to get people motivated to do that um, until there is a 
urgent need until there's a need. So there's some kind of a contextual need. Um, but it's yeah, it's uh, more efficiencies would be better if we could achieve those in the industry around something like that. That would be uh, there's no way to argue that's a bad idea. You know? Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening and they know anyone over at Humane Tech, that organization, I would love an introduction so that I can have a whole episode just on that topic alone. Um, I do actually see some interesting things happening. Uh, for example, at my son's school, they banned the use of uh, any kind of smart devices, whether it's a tablet or a phone or whatever, uh, with the exception of specific you know, times during class when they're absolutely needed and then they have to put them away and lock them away. And students will actually get, um, you know, detention and whatnot for bringing them out when they're not told that they can bring them out. So he came home all bummed out about it. And I was like, are you serious? Like, who can I call to think? Because <laughs> that is a great idea. But the, the teachers are seeing that the bringing in this technology into the classroom, uh, you know, it's great so long as they can control the content on the devices, but kids are kids. And it's like putting, you know, crack in front of a crackhead and telling them not to, not to use the crack. Um, if they can find ways to communicate with each other and screw around in class and not focus on what the teacher's talking about or text each other, uh, that's, that's what they're going to do. Um, it's what I would have done if I was, you know, in eighth grade or seventh grade, sixth grade, even throughout high school. Yeah. So the consumption habits of content have changed so much. Um, which are giving rise to the need for, you know, what we're talking about, digital infrastructure. But, uh, but the, um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I hadn't really, the concept you raised is an interesting one and I hadn't really given a lot of thought to it is the whole idea of just how much of our, of our mobile consumption, whether it be you, me, or our kids, how much of it truly relates to a, 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 a proper purpose or is it just mind drain? You know, uh, I know with my kids, I mean, they use their social media so much and the stuff they do. I mean, it's uh, my, you know, we try to monitor and everything. It's nothing really bad. It's, but it does suck up in a tremendous amount of time and it really doesn't serve. A, it's just, it's just the way they communicate with their friends. And, uh, but that does give rise to, you know, uh, an impact on this ecosystem, which is our, which is, which drives the digital economy and the digital layer. It's power it's, it's you know it's compute space it's uh, it's everything um and i don't know hopefully we'll never get in a situation in our lifetime where we have to start rationing that because that you know that seems like you know the, the the logical extension of how to fix that is to place limits like they are at the school uh hopefully hopefully we won't be in a world where that happens but a lot of these components that drive like i say the d data center ecosystem do have limits there are there is limited power available through our global production of uh, fleet. There is you know that's why we see so many new sea cables. Uh, uh, that I mean, I mean I hear a lot I hear about a lot of new projects that are discussed at least because you know there's need for more there's need for more capacity uh, uh, as we continue to drive more activity on the internet. So. Uh, um, but you know, I don't know. We're at the, as you say, we're age one of one hundred, maybe. I, I would agree that we're very early, and that's probably a good analogy. And um, you know, at some point on that continuum, some of these problems will have to be addressed. Um, and maybe the sooner we can start thinking about them, the better. That that stuff excites me. I mean, a lot of people look at our industry and they think it's boring and dull, and 
um, you know, not exciting. I think it's extremely exciting on so many different levels. Uh, stuff that you, that you work on and that you do, having this conversation alone, as you can tell in my voice throughout this conversation, it's fascinating and exciting. Um, and there's so much opportunity. And that's one of the key things I want to relay and that I do relay when I relate uh, when I'm talking to younger, you know, college-bound students or people who are in college, that they really should start learning the space and at least learning the language of this industry because it's going to be integral to our day-to-day lives. Those who can get out in front of it are going to be almost guaranteeing themselves employment uh, far into the future. Uh, yeah. Well, and you see it with the um, – you talk about the shortage of uh, – of, uh, workers, trained workers for this industry. You know, of course, I know the, I'm sure you're aware, very aware, I'm sure, of the Infrastructure Masons Initiative to try to cultivate, you know, more skilled uh, uh, workers. And, you know, they've got the, coll- the collaboration with uh, with the veteran, placement of veterans. Um, and it's, um, um, but, you know, it is something that the, these young people need to have an awareness as to, to you know, they need to connect the dots. Um, I'm working here locally with uh, United Health on a um, a secondary education STEM program to try to encourage more STEM education. I'm going to say activity, but also enthusiasm. Um, you know, uh, kids in high school they don't necessarily see why they want to take more math and science, mm-hmm. and and I think that's half the struggle. That's what at least that's what we're talking about and with this initiative uh, with United Health is. You know, just getting them involved in math clubs and robotics clubs and things like that. But uh, and I, Dean Nelson, and I have talked about how maybe the the program working with United Health could tie in, you know, to some of the stuff they're doing at Infrastructure Masons to really finish out the continuum. Kids come out of middle school, they start into high school. How do they see the full picture of why they need to be doing this, uh, so that they do have an awareness? To your point, awareness of because this will be the, um, the the employment source for a lot of a, a large percentage of people in the in the in the not too distant future. It won't just be this niche little industry that you know there's a thousand of us operate in. Um, it, it, it will be a more broad based. I mean, we're even seeing it now. Uh, more broad based industry. I know that when I say I'm a data center lawyer, used to people had no idea what that was. Now around in the communities and, and, and places I've, I've had, there's the, the people do under, they, they get it. Like, well, that's interesting. Now it's, now it's like, what is that to, well, that's interesting, you know, because they can actually start the conversation from a vantage point of, of knowing what a data center is to begin with. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, that was not the case. Yeah. Even maybe five or seven years ago was not the case. Yeah. You'd have to ask, do you know what a data center is? And people would be like, well, no. And you'd have to explain it. Now people will nod their head. At least pretending to know what a data center is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so one of the last questions I have for you before um, I let you go, man, because I don't want to take up your whole day and greatly appreciate your time. Given those of us who are in this space or surrounding ourselves with technology and innovation on a somewhat regular basis, what is something that's caught your attention in the last you know, a couple of days, weeks, months, whatever it may be, that's really made you stop and, and think critically about how things are evolving and changing or something that's kind of blown your mind or been a truly innovative uh, technology that you've, you've seen and learned about. Oh, gosh, I'd have to think about that. I mean, 
you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, you know, the, the things we've been focusing on as a team, trying to refine our offering. Um, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily qualifies as a technology, and I don't know that it's necessarily new news, but the the whole advent of the five G and the uh, and the enhanced capabilities of wireless connectivity. Um, I think maybe it's not about the the innovate. That's not innovation, right? That's been on the board for a while. It's a function of getting the infrastructure in place to facilitate it. But I think what's interesting is, you know, this constant circle that drives our industry is capacity drives more innovation, more enhanced applications, right? And it's almost like an innovation circle, right? Um, we innovate in the area of infrastructure, which facilitates innovation on the side of the apps. And that's something I think about quite a lot in this space in the context of is, you know, is it the right place to be, if nothing else, from a standpoint of your professional development? Uh, and I always come back full circle. It is because of, of what I just indicated. I mean, I mean, the unless we see quantum compute become mainstream and, you know, liquid nitrogen cooling devices uh, are, <laughs> are needed to drive data centers. Um, you know things like that, uh, kind of intriguing as well. But, but I think that whole that whole cycle, you know, is is something that that that, that intrigues me a lot. Um, and I, I key on five G because I think five G is going to kind of create you know exponential increase in connected devices and the functionality of connected devices, which in turn will drive uh, a lot of additional activity and and a lot of additional applications that we we don't even know what they are right now. Exactly. You hit on one of the major, major points that I use to refute those who think that things are going to become stagnant is we can't even imagine today the type of technology that's going to be invented and or leveraged into the future that's going to create needs for new applications Yeah, that are going to need even more compute and more storage and more network infrastructure uh, in place uh, to support it all. And that's yeah. that kind of also goes back to what we've been talking about. This this industry that we're in constantly feeds on itself, and what's old is or what's new is old almost within a, a few years. Uh, and it, but that's not a bad thing because it's all evolving and building on itself um, over and over and over again. Yeah, Correct. yeah, no, it. I agree. Well, the very last question I have for you, uh, which is one that I ask everybody, is do you love data centers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is such a, a, so much more stimulating environment than traditional real estate world that I lived in 2008 and prior. You know, with, I lived in my career, that is. Um, I mean, obviously, the transactional documents that we handle with our, you know, whether we're buying data centers or selling data centers or handling an M&A transaction or procuring power or development, whatever, you know, all those things that we do. But the things we're talking about underpin the importance of those. And um, and it's, um, it's an exciting time to be in this industry. You know, 10 years from now, maybe it'll maybe it'll be viewed differently. But right now, uh, for all the reasons we've discussed, it's uh, it's 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 a, it's a really great space to be in. Uh, to your point, you got, you got to love the data center industry. So, if people want to get a hold of you to talk shop or learn more about your practice or how you could be of assistance, how how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way? Well, I can uh, provide two points of contact. Uh, my email is james.grice 
at bclplaw.com. Um, and, uh, but my phone works as well. 816-820-6624. And, uh, either will work. There you have it, folks. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, James. This was a phenomenal conversation, a ton of data downloaded that was a lot of it new for me and very educational. Appreciate you taking the time and hope you have a great day. Likewise. Thank you very much. Peace. Bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.